0: welcome to the Queen Trail podcast. There are three different types of radiation, alpha, beta, and gamma.
1: What does this technology do? It's like, well, what can you do with electricity? I just survived 30 years HIV positive. I'm certainly not going to let a a little thing like a brain tumor derail me.
0: When I got to 29 pounds, I was so tired.
1: I just collapsed. Everything always goes back to being in center. It's a Mecca for cycling, for sure.
0: Struggle is the neutralizing force. And I said, there it is. This is the right family. I'm, I got like cold and.
1: It's one lone oak tree right in the middle of the trail. It's beautiful.
0: Hi, everybody. I hope you've had a great week since the last time that we got together. I'm going to go ahead and get right into this in the company of friends talk with my longtime and dear friend, Tamara Madison, who is a poet, an educator, and a true Queen Trell. She's written two volumes of poetry, including Moraine and Wild Domestic, both of which I have covered in sticky notes and I absolutely love. She's also the author of a chapbook called The Belly Remembers, which won a 2004 Buell Bradley Prize. Her work's been featured in Garrison Keillor's, The Writer's Almanac, and several other publications. And since retiring from teaching high school level English and French, she has continued to hone her love of poetry. This year, publishing A second chapbook that's called Along the Fault Line. Just to provide some context, we start out talking about relationships and later on our love of language and Tamara's poetry. This episode comes with a warning. We cover some mature subjects, so please be aware. So grab a cuppa and join Tamara and me in what will be part one of a two-part talk. Enjoy!
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a shame. I'm still coping with resentment, too. I've, and, and that's just my anger at myself, you know. Silly, stupid stuff like that. You know, I resent that even now mm-hmm. if I think about it. It pisses me off. It's like, where did he get off? And why couldn't I take that up with him? Why did I just acquiesce? You know, So I get mad out of myself. But
0: I learned. I think that the more you think about it, I, there's still stuff that's coming out. Now that I'll think about, like, I realized that because of particular parenting styles, the fact that my mom and my biological dad uh, were divorced when I was three, I just call him Francisco because I literally have not seen him since I saw him such few and far between times in my life. And the last time I saw him, I was 18. So he's really a non-person in my life, you know, and, and, and before I was 18, I saw him for, for about five days when I was 18. And then prior to that, I had not seen him since I was about seven years old, um, So he's he's really been a non person in my life. And I, I realized that even though I've gotten to a point where I have full acceptance over the fact that he's not part of my life, I'm okay, I don't need him to be in my life. My mom remarried, I have a stepdad that is my dad for all intents and purposes. And he's been around since I was about eight years old. Um, that has resulted, as much as it doesn't seem like it should, because of everything I just said, in my choices in dating. And it's taken me being alone for this amount of time and, you know, some of the the dating that I did to realize that there are issues that you're always just going to have to work through as time moves on and you go back and kind of examine that, you'll start making some connections and realize, oh, okay. And then sometimes that, at least for me, it seems to absolve some of that anger. Like, okay, yeah, that that totally wasn't cool or it wasn't cool that that was the result of that interaction. But also I see why it happened and I can move forward because I've learned my lesson yeah. you know I mean I guess I guess it's all lesson learning yeah
1: and some people just don't learn and they keep doing the same old things and some of us learn and I think I learned a bit this time
0: yeah I hope so I think you always do and and I think one of the biggest gifts is that you are comfortable being by yourself. So you know how to love yourself, you know how to nurture yourself. And I think that's where it all starts is being able to have that because it's a lot harder when people aren't able to love and nurture themselves and really need to have the distraction of another person there, not necessarily somebody that they love, but the distraction of somebody else, so that they don't have to spend time by
1: themselves. Yeah. I remember that my mother uh, really hated being alone. And she, when she was single, she put out classifieds in the newspaper, and that's how she met guys. She, <laughs> <laughs> it's that's so progressive. How old was she and what
0: time period was
1: this? It started in her late 60s after my dad died. She um, she would go on the classifieds. She met mostly younger men who wanted a younger woman, but you know she had a, quite a lot of uh, appeal, and so she made some friends that way. And at one point, she she dated several guys that she met that way, and then and then she hooked up with an old someone that I grew up with, and I was friends with his daughter, somebody that I've known for a long time. She was very happy with him, and then when he died, uh, once again the classifieds <laughs> came out, and she was. Talking to some guy that she'd met on the classifieds, and then she realized that she played bridge with this guy every week, and it just never occurred to her to think of him in some that he might be looking for a relationship. Anyway, they were very, very different, but he was her last boyfriend, and they they were together for several years. And you know, she just hated being alone, and that, I I don't feel that way. I was single for just a couple of years in my twenties I was very happy living alone and I met my second husband at that point and I had decided I would never marry again unless everything was perfect. And I met this guy and everything was perfect. And so we got married. Wow, that's (laughs) so magical. And then of course everything wasn't perfect after that. But you know, I really missed living alone. And um, so I get to do it again and I like it even more than I did before.
0: That's wonderful. I think everybody should, especially I never did live alone until I was divorced. And I don't think that living alone frightened me. I did a lot of things alone because of the marriage that I was in. It was like, well, if I'm going to do this, you know, it I either get to do it alone or I get to not do it at all. So I was quite comfortable with doing things by myself. Um, so I wasn't afraid of being alone. but. Um, I think I was really sad. I was really sad of the prospect of ending up alone. You know, part of it was after all of that, like 26 years, I'm alone. Like if somebody would have told me, I'm looking in my crystal ball at the beginning of this relationship and you will end up alone at the end, (laughs) um, I wouldn't have gone through all of that because, you know, I mean being married is hard work. So there was a lot of hard work there, but I, I was really sad. And, you know, part of it is being invested in being part of a partnership. Part of it is, um, all of that for nothing. And it's not for nothing. Um, there's so much value and just spending time with yourself and getting to know who you are and figuring out what your likes are, what your personality is, what your strengths are. I think that you can't do that without spending time by yourself and having that introspection and just really examining the world from your own perspective without having somebody else going, mm, no, you know, what I actually see is this," so like you need to reframe your your lungs there, uh, it's really a valuable thing. It's really a good thing. And I think it expands. It, it makes you wiser in in many ways.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I feel pretty damn wise. Yeah, I think you are. <laughs> I always have thought that, you know. Yeah, well, you know, wisdom is one thing, but I, I think I was at the pinnacle of wisdom when I was like 17. I knew all the mistakes I would never make. And then I made them all, because that's what life is about, making mistakes. And it's easy to be smart when you're 17 and haven't lived yet. And I was really smart.
0: <laughs> Isn't that funny? Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think that's probably true for me. It's funny, 17, that is just such a transformative age, you know, every song. You... Yeah,
1: you're you're an adult almost.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I was pretty smart when I was seventeen too. Um, I bet you were. But yeah, you know, then I went out and did all the things I wasn't I wasn't supposed to do. I think that the biggest thing is when I was seventeen, I knew that. I was going to go out and conquer the world. I was going to have a great job. I was going to be super successful. I was just going to go out there and get that tiger. And then I fell in love. Mm -hmm. And I think that happens so much. You know, you Mm -hmm. fall in love and that's all that matters. Everything else falls by the wayside.
1: Yeah, it's sad. I met my second husband when I was in school, and I was about to graduate, and so I had a job lined up to teach English in Japan, and I was looking forward to that. I'd been studying Japanese for a year intensively, and it sounded like a good way to get started. And um, then I met Ron, and he talked me out of it. He said, oh, well, let's go somewhere else and teach English. Let's teach English in Brazil. Wouldn't that be great? Brazil. And I thought, well, okay, yeah, Brazil. I like Brazilian music. Fine, that would be good. Okay. And, of course, it turned out to be not as easy as teaching English in Japan was. We couldn't. Anyway, he admitted to me years later that he had no intention of going to Brazil to teach English. Mm. Instead, we... He manipulated you and
0: took your dream away.
1: Yeah. Yeah, he did. He did. And yet I still love him. He was the love of my life. I came to realize that over the last couple of years, even though he took my dream away and he lied to me. But I get it. You know, what do they say in French? Um, The heart has its reasons that reason just can't understand. And uh, that's the truth. Mm hmm yeah we loved each other in spite of it all but again mm-hmm. you know I was glad to get divorced from him it didn't stop our relationship because we had children and that's fine it probably wouldn't have stopped our relationship anyway because whatever it was that attracted me to him and him to me you know was something that didn't ever really go away
0: yeah I think that we're all just trying to get through life we're all trying to meet our goals but we also can't do that without having others in our lives and so you're always trying to balance somebody else's wants with your own wants and just having those different desires working on each other is always going to result in something different something that you didn't plan on one of them is going to be stronger than the other and so some desires get abandoned like your dream of teaching English in Japan that would have been so interesting you
1: know yeah but it would have been but I didn't have my heart set on and it was just something to do
0: yeah so that's why it was easy to get talked out of it Mm -hmm. i think i have a lot of um wherever it is that dreams go to commiserate with each other for not having come true. Uh (laughs) I have a big space that is filled with those dreams. And, you know, so some of them are really fantastic and they just don't happen. And others are just, you know, like this would be great, but
1: something better
0: came along. Mm
1: -hmm. That, Yeah. It's like, Oh, I've got to write that down because I got an idea, something to write about when you saying Nice. Well, the idea of dreams, you know, I don't know about you, but you probably have some place where you keep your orphaned earrings. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That'll work itself into a poem someday.
0: Yeah. You know what I did a while ago? It's, you know, it just seems like a lot of things that I have to talk about have a sad story associated with them. And I guess maybe that means I'm getting old because um, they just seem to start out that way. But I had this beautiful beautiful tree out front and my kids had helped me plant it helped me dig the hole helped me put I did all of this research to get this tree that wasn't going to mess with the pipes Um, it's a cassia tree and it's got the most amazing ball of flowers when it blossoms they're just gorgeous like a flaming universe they're this beautiful golden color and Sophie and I left to visit cameron when he graduated from boot camp and two days after we came back from that visit the tree was there in the morning when i left i just i loved that tree so much it's just it it seems almost ridiculous but i love that tree and i came home at lunch and there was no tree in my yard what happened i (sighs) my former in-law had it removed um didn't consult with me at all. And I opened my door and I I fell on the street. I just fell on my knees. I It was like somebody had socked me in the stomach. All that was left. They put it through a grinder. It was the most beautiful tree ever. And oh. I... It's one of the biggest heartbreaks of my life still to this day.
1: I mean, they could have cut off a branch maybe that was in the way or something. And to do it without consulting, was it her house? Did she own the house?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Mm
1: -hmm. Sophie and
0: I were so depressed. We were so depressed. Mm -hmm. And so it took about a month and a half for me to finally go out there. And I picked through the little bits of tree that were left. And... I found some pieces. They were like a quarter size. And the other thing that had happened right around the same time with my cousin had to cut down a tree on her property. So I took that tree and I found this woman who would make keepsake boxes. And I called her up and I said, hey, I have all of this wood and I have these very special pieces of this tree. Could you do something with it? So she said, yes, she used the olive wood. From my cousin's property and she used some of the pieces as decor for these boxes I ended up getting like five boxes for my cousins and Cameron Sophie and myself and then my lost earrings and broken jewelry I took those over to her and she used them to decorate the boxes and they are the most beautiful keepsakes ever they're so special mm yeah, I don't know, I guess talking about lost earrings or something, something (laughs) triggered that story, you know. And I do have to say that in the meantime, the tree started just sending a bunch of suckers out. And it went through a metamorphic stage. And it's come back out as this beautiful tree again. So yeah, I can completely
1: understand uh, being in love with a tree makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. There's a a little known book by john steinbeck not too many people have read it that i've found but i've read it a couple times i haven't read it for a couple of well, decades but and i read it the first time when i was a teenager i think and then again in my 30s and it was a very good book it's called to a god unknown and there is a very important tree in that story i recommend it you're looking around for something good to read
0: i'm gonna read it to a god unknown yeah. i love that I read recently the overstory. The entire book is basically an ode to trees. It's so beautiful. Mm and um who is the other author he wrote the siddhartha
1: oh herman Hess.
0: herman Hess. he's got a few books out there about trees he was a huge huge tree lover oh i did not yeah i'm trying to think of what the quote is um as a man sees a tree so is his heart Hmm.
1: see that that makes sense
0: yeah speaking of books I really wanted to talk to you about your books.
1: Ah, okay.
0: So you've got two volumes of poetry. Actually, I have a third book here. I don't think I have all of your books. I'm not sure if these are in the right order. But the first one I got from you was Wild Domestic, which is a really wonderful collection of poems. And then I picked up Moraine and I had the honor to come and listen to you read poems from these books at the different times. And they are completely covered with sticky notes, because I do read them. um, When I'm cleaning the shelves, I usually pull one or the other down and read a poem or uh, a few or, you know, sit down and because it's more fun to read poetry than it is to dust. (laughs) so I'll read quite a few poems. And um, the other book that I've got is Along the Fault Line, Mm -hmm. which is uh, more of a chapbook. It's a little bit shorter, and it's got some really Mm -hmm. wonderful poetry in there. I know you've got another one that's called The Belly Remembers, and that one won a Buell Bradley Prize. And your work's been featured in Garrison Keillor's The Writer's Almanac, and several other publications, including uh, Chiron Review or Chiron? Chiron. Chiron. Thank you. I was completely wrong every single time. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> Chiron Review. Your daily poem, A Year of Being Here, Sheila Nogig, and Nerve Cowboy, just to name a few. And since retiring high school level English and French, you've continued to hone your love of language and acute insights that I think are just rich and sensual and haunting, you know, this blend of life and emotion and philosophical perspective by completing that last book that I just mentioned along the fault line,
1: um, which was released, was it released this year? Yeah, it was released in March. I still haven't had a book release party for it, but I might end up not doing that.
0: Oh, no, I love your book release parties.
1: Yeah, I should have. I just, you know, with COVID still on, I'm kind of hesitant, looking for the right venue. And I've been busy. Yeah, that's my most recent book. And then I have another one that's going to be coming out next year from Sheila Nagig, and I'm excited about that. And then I have another manuscript that I'm shopping around right now.
0: So the manuscript, is that not poetry? Because it seems like most of what you write, at least what I've seen, is poetry. Is that
1: right? Yeah, that's really what I, I just, I write poetry. I don't write other stuff too much. You don't publish anything but poetry anymore. So, yeah, I, poetry is it. I've just kind of realized I'm not going to be writing novels. I don't have a sense of plot, so I'm not really good with fiction, I think, in metaphors. and Plus, I just love poetry. Poetry is, you can say, so much in a short space, and I like the the economy of it. And I I really think poetry should be more popular than it is because we're really an impatient society these days. We don't sit still for very long. You know, We're always looking at our phones. Why not just look at a poem instead? I mean, they're really short. You can read a poem quickly and get something out of it. People should read more poetry. There, I said it. Yeah,
0: no, I completely agree. It's that quick snapshot that That tweet, they are short. And I think that because of that brevity, you really have to have a good grasp of language and a deep understanding of meaning beyond that. I mean, it's not just enough to throw a word down there. You have to understand what the meaning of it is. You don't need that with long form. You don't need that with essays or novels, because you could spend as many pages as you want describing something. But with a poem, you have half a page. But that's it.
1: Yeah. You you have to know what you're saying. I that was a mistake I made when I was young. I always I've written poetry all my life pretty much, but you know, I went through a stage of just trying to sound smart and not really knowing what I was even writing about. So, yeah, you have to know what you're writing about. It can't just be a bunch of cute images or fun words that go together. It has to be more than that. But I love it.
0: Yeah. I I kind of think that In some ways, poetry is coming back. I think people are starting to notice it a lot more. I see it on my feed and I've seen quite a few books that have been published that really are a collection of poems. Um, But in the expansion of that collection of poems is also an overarching story, which I think happens with a lot of your poetry where you're sharing a life story. You know, I think your mom comes through a lot as this very elegant woman who never really was made to live in a sandy, dusty, um,
1: out in the middle of nowhere,
0: (laughs) out in the middle of nowhere, um, citrus farm.
1: She was a city girl. And, you know, they called it this is a poem that didn't make it into the collection, but they called it the ranch, even though it was a farm, because my dad had told her early on, she didn't even know him very well when they got married. They'd only known each other for two weeks. And this was World War II and all that. And then he was off at training camp somewhere and he kind of forced the issue. So she married him. And then right before they got married, she said, wait a minute, I don't even know what you majored. What did you study in college? And he said, agronomy. And she asked him what that was. Well, it's farming. And oh, no, are you going to be a farmer? And he said, no, honey, I'd never put you on a farm. (laughs) So he bought the land without telling her and called it the ranch.
0: Oh, she must have been so disappointed.
1: Oh, it was really, it was very hard for her, but she was a child of a broken home who really was her own mother's mother. She had to mother her mother. Her mother was a mess. And my mother was just very strong. And so she was not going to make her children grow up in a broken home. So she just did whatever she had to do to keep it going. Mm -hmm. And um, it wasn't always great.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, going back to what we were talking about earlier, I can completely relate to that because that was precisely one of the reasons why I was still in a marriage 22 years in 26 years total was because I didn't want my kids to grow up in a broken home right and part of that reason is because I grew up in a broken home and I don't have I don't have good memories I guess is that the right word that's why I paused because I don't know if memories is the right word but Mm -hmm. um but I never realized how much more damaging it could be to grow up as a child in a home where the relationship is shit. It could be just as bad.
1: Yeah, that could be bad, too. Yeah, I remember one time my brother and I urging my parents to get divorced just because they were fighting. and It was just so unpleasant. And that wasn't going to ever happen. Never did. My mom stayed with him till the end, and it was difficult for her.
0: How long were they married?
1: Let's see. My dad was 68 when he died, and he—I guess he was like 24 when they got married. So, however long that is, it's a number—forty-something
0: years. Yeah,
1: but they were attracted to one another. I mean, there was a spark for sure between them always, mm-hmm. and uh, no, maybe at the end though. No. It wasn't from her side she just that was it for her but anyway she had a really good relationship after that with one
0: guy. That's good a little redeeming quality there to everything that she had to put up with and it just seems like she was always really super elegant regardless it was like Mm -hmm. you know I just imagine this lady with her drugstore brand perfume and your dad smelling of oils and chemicals that he used both driving off to you know, go to wherever it was that they were going and just such a seemingly mismatch of personalities.
1: Oh yeah. They were really different. Although they looked good though. When they went to those fancy parties, they always looked really good. He cleaned up pretty well.
0: Mm -hmm. What made him... I garden, and the little bit of gardening that I do, it is really hard to get stuff to grow because you put it out there, and, you know, I just think that we have these ideas of you're just going to put these plants or these seeds in the ground, and you're going to water them every day, and they're going to produce whatever it is that you're expecting them to produce, and then all of a sudden, you've got grubs that are eating the roots, um, I couldn't figure out why my cucumber and my scarlet runner beans were so puny. I think I got like two cucumbers and three beans or something. I had them in the same area and I found out that they use the same nutrients and so they fight each other. <laughs> You're never oh. supposed to grow them next to each other.
1: Oh, there's so much- learn
0: there's so much you would never think this you know and then the raccoons come to eat the grubs so and the possums and they're throwing your plants around and now everything's dying and then you have some beetles that are eating it and Mm -hmm. aphids Mm -hmm. and i it's just it's really hard and um, i'm really lucky i feel so fortunate every time i get something from the yard um But your dad chose basically like, was it a dust field that he decided to turn into a citrus farm? Like, he really had an uphill battle to make this place work.
1: Yeah, it was sand. And he was a product of an agricultural school. He went to the University of Iowa. He was from Iowa. He was a farm boy. And he just didn't want to live where it was cold anymore. So he moved to California and he knew all about the latest techniques, you know, science. He used science. was always on a crusade against um anything that would get in the way of nourishing the trees so he was mad about weeds he would not tolerate any weeds growing now of course people see things differently but when he was farming he had to get rid of every single anything that grew that wasn't a tree and he couldn't support us uh with the proceeds from the farm. So he had a business with another guy selling farm chemicals and they mixed together things and whatever. They sold these farm chemicals. So my dad was a big proponent of chemicals and he hated Rachel Carson and she really pissed him off. He thought DDT was wonderful. I mean, I was raised on DDT.
0: Oh my goodness.
1: And my brother had the be and the boy had the farm and they used agent orange to kill the weeds and I remember the smell of it, and uh, their clothes would be all red and everything. But my brother's healthy, a healthy 70 something year old guy. So somehow he didn't get cancer or something from it. But that's amazing. That could be where my dad got Parkinson's, but we'll never really know for sure. But um, yeah, that's how my dad did it. Ways that are, are not really smart. I don't know, I think modern farming is learning more about things like that, eventually. I mean, it's a, it's going to be slow because factory farms run the old-fashioned way about, you know, one crop, deplete the soil, kill whatever you don't want, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's how my dad did it. It was all alchemy.
0: There's something... Um... I think exciting in that for, especially for guys, you know, like I'm a scientist, but I personally, I was ordering nematodes. I don't know. I paid $60 for a little package of powdered nematodes that you add water to and that makes them come alive and you sprinkle them all over the place. And you know, there's nematodes that'll eat grubs Mm -hmm. and there's nematodes that'll kill ants and it's all natural. Um, And I know that that's the slow way because maybe there was some impact. I didn't really notice it. So I can see where you would get impatient, especially if you're trying to raise a family on a farm that's not producing the finances that are needed Mm -hmm. with natural methods.
1: Yeah, that's right. Wow. Yeah.
0: Did you grow up there through college? You were in Mecca?
1: Yeah, uh we moved there when I was 2. We lived in Covina before, West Covina, and I don't remember that at all. And we lived on the farm. I guess we moved away when I was 11 because I learned later one of the girls in my class was pregnant by her dad, and my parents, they didn't want me growing up in that kind of environment anyway. I went, you know, I went to public school, and the public school down there in Mecca was uh you know, it was a country school and the other kids were either landowners kids or farm workers kids and mostly farm workers kids. And, you know, and I, I try to write about this a lot because I came from privilege. I'm white and my, my father was college educated and, you know, we were landowners and I went to school with kids whose parents worked on the farm, not my, our farm, but other farms, you know, and it was very different. And, you know, I had all these advantages those kids didn't have. So I skipped second grade because I already knew a lot of that stuff. We moved to Palm Desert when I was in sixth grade. And that was really exciting to me because it was like a city. Like, I, there were kids to play with on my street. It was like a street, it wasn't a road, it was a street. And, you know, so that was really exciting at first. And that's really where we lived until I was old enough to drive. And then we moved back to the farm because it was hard on my dad to drive home from the farm every day with the sun in, in his eyes because he'd be driving west. Mm-hmm. So, and, oh, oh, and also he had a stroke and needed to be back on the farm. And so we moved back there as soon as I could drive. And I lived there. And, I, and now then I, by that time, I was old enough to appreciate the farm. When I was young, I, I appreciated it in lots of ways, but it get to a certain age and you just want to be around peers. You don't want to be stuck in the middle of nowhere forever. And by the time I was 16, being in the middle of nowhere had a certain charm. I could understand it. Yeah. And then at college and that was that. And then I used to go around, we kept the farm for a while. And I used to go there in the winter. I'd take my kids down there because no one was living in the house. Take the kids and the dog and we'd spend the weekend in the winter hiking in the desert and just enjoying the silence, picking the ripe fruit. And it's pretty charming, and they have good memories of it. Would happen? We'd hike in the desert, but we'd walk in the orchard to pick fruit from the trees. Nice. It was grown by my dad or my brother. And yeah, my kids have really good memories of the farm, and I'm glad about that. But my brother sold it because it, there wasn't any point really in keeping it. It didn't make any money, and it was a lot of hard work. He still kind of feels apologetic about it, and I don't understand why. But, he, you know, nobody was living out there, and I only went there like five times a year. So I get it, but I miss it. But I was very attuned to it. I've written a lot of poetry about the farm, and these are just, this is just kind of the tip of the iceberg, but I didn't want to get boring, so I didn't want to make a full-length manuscript out of it
0: the poetry of the farm is sprinkled throughout the books that I have. And I don't think that they would ever get boring because there's so many life lessons. And I do remember, I was trying to find the poem. I couldn't remember which one it's in about the little girl that got pregnant by her father. And
1: Oh, that's in Maureen.
0: Yeah. And, it was just i mean the way that you wrote it you know you're you're just sitting there having this nice time she just lets you know very um like this mundane thing oh you know yeah this yeah. thing happened to me and you're so innocent and impressionable at that age where it's kind of like oh okay, well, that happened, and it doesn't seem so terrible. But as an adult reading this story, it's incredibly tragic and just gutting. And again, just going back to the preciseness of uh, telling, you know, I tend to write long form. I write novels, and that would be a novel all on its own for me, whereas you've got it in maybe a page it might be a little bit more than a page and it's the whole story right there and it's just this um old photograph that you're looking at and you're just trying you know you, you reread it because you're examining it like this is such a great tragedy and yet it's being presented through the sweet perspective of a child and that just makes it so much more painful to you know to read
1: that's what I like about poetry, that you can tell a story in a few lines, you know, I, I just like a snapshot, like you say, I feel like a good poem could, should be like a snapshot. Mm-hmm. That, that's a good, yeah, yeah, why not?
0: Yeah, you know, they say a picture tells a thousand stories, but I think a poem paints an entire picture. Um yeah, there's some really good stories in here. I'm just looking at here. I'm trying to turn to a page because I have all of these stickies with little hearts on them. Um, you have this great poem that's called Midsummer. And it's just, you know, wanting to stay in the green world and Midsummer to last forever. But
1: yeah, that's about aging mm. and summer. You know, I wrote that when I was still teaching and summer was... Back then, somewhere was almost three months long. They somehow they thought it would be smart to make it shorter. I don't think that's I'm still angry about that.
0: Oh, my goodness, I know. I am um, one of my friends is posting already. He lives in Dallas, and he said that classes started today. Today was the first day. And actually, one of my other friends who lives in Big Bear posted that today was the first day of school for those kids
1: that's just wrong that's just so wrong yeah. what happened to summer you know i just i don't know as a teacher i was exhausted until about this point in summer right about end of july i started to feel finally rested and then i'd have august to enjoy summer and to get get my mind ready and start working on you know what i'm going to teach but i'd put that off to the very last minute cuz i'd get get it anyway mhm and then somewhere along the line, they switched it up and made it short. We had to go back, you know, in the early, early August. And, and then we'd go back, and the air conditioning wouldn't work in the building. This happened <laughs> yeah. year after year, and it would take weeks before they could get it and someone out to fix it. And I remember that. That was hell. And I don't know how they're working. I don't know if that's still going on. I I, I shudder to think probably is. We just go later in June, because June here is still cold and you know it's cloudy and cold and not summery so i don't understand why can't we just go through june and then july and august and part of september that can be summer but you know that's just me because i like summer and i like being outside and all that
0: well yeah no it's it's logical to go through june and then go back in september instead
1: yeah And just keep, because when it's hottest is when the kids don't want to study. I mean, not that they ever do, but, you know, school just doesn't seem right when it's that hot. Oh, well, they don't care. Nobody cares what I think, so... (laughs)
0: About that. I I bet but I do I bet it's really nice to not have to go to school.
1: It really is. And I had completely forgotten about it. I arranged for a um, reserved a place for my kids to all get together, my son and, and his family and my daughter and her entourage. You know, it's cheaper to do it later in August. And so I just arranged it. And then I found out it's my grandson's he will have gone to kindergarten for a week. He'll have to take a whole week off kindergarten. And they didn't want to do that at first, but, you know, it was too late. I'd already made it. And besides, it's kindergarten. He'll learn plenty right. down here, right? you know. But now I thought, oh, darn, now I have to factor that in. <laughs> I've got a grandson in school. It's school again, rearing its ugly head.
0: <laughs> um, You know, there's some really, really good poetry out there that rhymes. Some of your poetry rhymes, but more often than not, it doesn't. What makes a poem work, in your opinion? Because they they all work, um, whether they're rhyming or not.
1: Well, I think it's a lot of things. First of all, clarity of subject. You have to know what you're writing about. And I think imagery is very important. Stanley Kunitz said, end on an image. And I think ending on an image is good for any kind of writing, even if it's a a letter ending on an image is really satisfying to the reader and often thought provoking so words using the right word and sound sound is important i've actually started putting more rhyme into my poetry but not end rhyme necessarily kind of a, a maybe slant rhyme or or i like to end a poem on a rhyming couplet if it works out you know mm-hmm. but what makes a poem good is most important clarity of subject and knowing when to stop And what to leave out using the right words that sound right. There's a a lot of people writing these days somehow got this idea that you have to get rid of articles. And I feel like sometimes it's really off-putting. It's like, you know, there should be a hand on the end of that arm. You know, why, why did you cut the hand off? Sometimes using and or the gives it a beat. And also, it changes the meaning too. And you just shouldn't just be getting rid of articles just because they're small. So,
0: yeah, that might be a casualty of, you know, these brief one hundred and forty two characters for tweet or just, you know, you've got all these acronyms, LOL for laugh out loud, that sort of thing. And I think that articles became part of the casualty of that trend.
1: Maybe, but I think it's going, been going on longer than Twitter.
0: Hmm.
1: I think, I don't know, but I don't believe in it. Okay. Sometimes I want to use an article. Sometimes you need to know it's the, Not just any blade of grass, the blade of grass, the particular one I'm looking at. So the, you tell me to get rid of the the, forget it. I'm not listening to you, you know? Mm -hmm. And sometimes you just need that extra beat. I think you need to read everything out loud and make sure it works because, you know, poetry is essentially spoken. It's spoken word. Although some poems work better on the page than others. Some poems are not meant to be read aloud, I guess, but most I think should be. And even so. In, in any kind of writing, I think the mark of a good writing is is a certain rhythm. You know, when you read enough good writing, then you you can tell when something's not rhythmically right.
0: I think it's important to speaking of that, being able to write in an active voice versus a passive voice. And I know that's Mm. you know (laughs) what passive voice absolutely Yeah. The the stagnation that you get from passive voice is
1: just that drives me crazy. Well well, you remove you're removed from the action, you're removed from the heart of the story. I mean people if you think about listen to people talk. People tend to use passive voice when they don't want to they don't want to be emotionally involved
0: mm-hmm.
1: it would be nice to receive a blah 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 right <laughs> <You know>? right <laughs> just say what you mean poetry needs should be more blunt it should say what it means and not make guess about it But a little mystery is good. I mean, people think about it. I know sometimes people think you should include explanations. If you use a word that people aren't familiar with, you ought to use a, a word that people are more familiar with or whatever. But if it's the right word, let them use the dictionary. It's not hard to look up a word these days, you know.
0: Oh, I am such a friend of dictionaries and thesauruses. You know, I want to know every possible word that I can use to say the same thing because there's nuances in using, say like last night I was looking for the right word and I was thinking about these combinations of what I was talking about and I thought, I need to say in every permutation. And I thought, but that's not exactly it. So I did find a thesaurus and looked at all these words and variances, every every variance actually sounded better in that place. But it has a slightly different connotation than permutation and a much different connotation than combination. So it is important to use those words. And I'm actually trying to find your poem, Missing Whom, which
1: oh. speaks directly to this, right? Yeah, that's in moraine. Yeah, Missing Whom. I have it right here. Yeah, because, you know, English used to have two forms of you. We used to have the vowel form, which is, you know, casual or singular, and then the plural. And now, since we got rid of that, we're always using the plural or formal you. And sometimes it's just so awkward, like to say, you know, when you're talking plural to people, like, I like your car, you know, but is your car, you, plural? In English, that's, in the old days, it would have been a difference between thy car, if you're talking to one person, or your, if you're talking to more than one. Mm -hmm. And now we say stuff like, your guy's car, Where you know I really like your guys' car. It sounds so lame, and it's because we need we got rid of whom we got rid of thou. We need we need whom and all the, but it's not going to happen. We also need a bunch of new pronouns. I feel like
0: as language transitions because it's really a living fabric, which is why we don't have thy and thou and.
1: Even though we need them.
0: Even though we need them, but it's this living fabric. And so words keep aging out and then new words come in and some of them stick and some of them just get tossed by the wayside because they're just trendy, I guess. They don't have that longevity to them. I think eventually something will come in that will be right. But we do tend to recycle a lot, you know, we recycle words and terms and something that used to mean something at one time no longer means that it's something totally different. It's hard to keep up. I, I hear this complaint a lot. Like, you know, people shouldn't be using this word for this, you know, back in my day, etc. And I'll have the conversation with these folks that are getting really angry. And I'm like, it's,
1: it's actually a living fabric. So yeah it, it, it's language evolves it's a living thing mm-hmm. and and it's it's ridiculous to try to stop it like you know when i was growing up you got excited about things now you get excited for them and there's no point in complaining that you know people should say we get excited about where we graduate from you don't graduate high school you graduate from it but not anymore now you graduate high school it's fine just you know, I think it's silly to try to stop the evolution of language. You know, we could be like the French with their academy and, and uh, they don't let in any, any foreign words. But you know what? People use foreign words anyway. <laughs> it's just pointless to try to stop it.
0: You know, I, I still use both thanks for the invitation and thanks for the invite. Mm-hmm. And every time I hear myself saying, thanks for the invite, I just think, oh, I cringe a little bit. You know, that proper English student within me is just going,
1: oh, I know, but it's no, how we talk. Don't do that. You know, I I, <laughs> I stay stuff like that, too. And also, I swear a whole lot more than I really approve of, because it's how we talk. It's how we fucking talk. Yeah. You know?
0: I do that too. And, you know, I've commented that fuck is such a great word, because it's a verb, it's a noun, it's an adjective. I mean, it it is the most contortionist word of the English language, it can become anything that you want it to be. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's really, a it's actually a wonderful word. And it's one of our oldest words. Let's just embrace it. You know, I
0: mean, I think that if the words are available, use them, uh, you know, clearly within reason, but it's not going to go away just because somebody says that they're not going to use that word or they oppose swearing. Why? Why do you mm-hmm. oppose swearing? I remember there was a discussion going on on one of my friends' Facebook pages. And I said, I just read this great book and here's what was in it. And about three people asked me, what's the name of the book? And I purposely didn't use it because I think the title of the book is Everything's Fucked, The Story of Hope. (laughs) (laughs) And... Really, in the end, it was funny because I was reading it like, okay, when does the hope come then? Well, it doesn't because... Everything's fucked. And it's really a commentary, you know, dissecting society um, type of book. It's it's a psychology book. And I thought it was a very good book. But as soon as I said, here's what it is, and I put F, asterisk, ampersand, whatever, you know, (laughs) rather than, than putting the word out there because I knew who the audience was. I said, there's a lot of swearing, and it actually makes the book a better read because of all of the foul language in there. And she said, oh, I will not be reading it. Thank you. And I'm like, okay. I I think he was talking a lot about Maslow's scale or, you know, pyramid of hierarchy and just having some foul language thrown in there occasionally just kind of made you go, oh, yeah, you know what? That's interesting. Thanks for (laughs) putting it in that context.
1: You know, I, I really hate the way history and science were taught when I was in school. They were just so boring because it was all from a book. Maybe if the book had used a little more interesting language, it would have been less awful. Maybe I would have cared. Maybe Because now as an adult, I'm interested in history and I'm interested in science. But as a student, I wanted they just didn't have enough swear words in those books, maybe. That could be
0: it. <laughs> Um, I just have to say, I hope you don't mind. I love this picture of you on the cover of Along the Fault Line.
1: What makes you think it's me?
0: I don't know. I just assumed it was you. And it reminds me of a Led Zeppelin cover. Really? It is me. (laughs) I thought it was you. And there's just this sweet, innocent, natural, just um, like the world is right. It's it's a great picture.
1: I really like it. Um, yeah, it's a sunset. Yeah, I like that it's a modest, I mean, it's a nude photo, but it's modest. And actually, the photographer is an old friend. And he sold a lot of that he used to sell, um, maybe he still does sell photographs on the mall in Washington DC on weekends I'm sure he doesn't do that anymore but he used to and he sold a lot of them there and I always kind of as I kept coming out with these poems about growing up in the desert I imagined this as a book cover and I found a publisher who agreed that that would be a good idea but, uh, Shannon Phillips of Picture Show Press put the book together and I, I think it came out really well
0: hmm there's this sense of, I don't know, just happy expectation about it. I like it. And the album cover I'm thinking of is Houses of the Holy. And I believe that these are Robert Plant's kids that are walking up some
1: steps. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Now I'm looking at it because you mentioned it. Yeah, I I wasn't big into Led Zeppelin. But never looked at that album cover. But look at all those kids. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. I guess I was 18. And it's funny because photographer was the only friend that my brother had that I could relate to. He was interesting. He, he traveled, you know, spoke some foreign languages. And anyway, and at some point early on in my womanhood, he was a lover at that point that he took that picture. And um, <laughs> I was home for winter break. I was in college at UCSB at the time. And I'd come home and he always wanted to come to the farm to pick fruit. And he wanted to go in the desert and do some photographs and he told me he wanted to do some nude photographs and that was fine with me i was never modest in that way and so we did and when we got back my dad said so what were you guys doing in the desert i said oh we were we were taking nude photos Oh, yeah. <laughs> my dad, of he just thought I was joking, and David was like mortified. He was so embarrassed. Like, he, and my dad totally, just totally blew off. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> it, it made me laugh just because David was so embarrassed about that. But my dad, understandably, he should have yeah. been I guess.
0: Yeah. Well, your dad just <laughs> didn't believe you. That's even better. <laughs> right. <laughs> she yeah. would never be that honest.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, he should have known. I mean, he knew I wasn't kind of a nudist. He he should have known. But anyway, I was always skinny dipping. We had a pool and I was always skinny dipping and stuff.
0: You just reminded me, I think it was you that told me the story about when you mentioned you were at Santa Barbara and all of you guys went like skinny dipping or anyway, there was a photo that was taken in the dark and the next day you guys ended up in the paper naked.
1: Oh, yeah. (laughs) We weren't skinny dipping. We were streaking. (laughs) And that poem's in my book, uh, Wild Domestic. Yeah, that was, streaking was the craze back then. We were at UCSB, streaking. <laughs> it was so funny, <laughs> streaking the dean's house, streaking the whole place, and nobody cared. It was the middle of the night, but it was fun. <laughs> that's so funny and yeah and in the morning there we were in the school paper and I've tried to find that photograph since I've, I've gone to uh, UCSB to the newspaper there and looked in the archives and I wasn't able to find it but I'd love to see it because it was it was shocking it was really shocking to see myself there naked in the photograph I happened to be with a bunch of guys and I wasn't the only girl and it was just very funny
0: that's hilarious
1: yeah, it was a funny picture because the guys, it was taken right as they were on the down jump. Mm. So their penises were pointing upward, but they were not erect. And it, the guys were embarrassed by that. I remember the <laughs> discussion of that the next day.
0: I bet. <laughs> I bet. I, we look so peony. <laughs> well. <laughs> i I don't know. Maybe at that age, I might not have been all that embarrassed about it. But I think that would be something that, If I wasn't expecting it, if I woke up and there I am in a paper, nude, unexpectedly, I might uh, be a bit embarrassed and just kind of, you know, rethinking my choices. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Well, you grew up, you're younger than I am. And, you know, that was in the early 70s. I mean, it was just big deal. You know, nudity was happening and streaking was popular and no big deal. Mm -hmm. But yeah, things got a little more conservative after that.
0: Well, you know, speaking of that, I'm always thinking, you know, like, thank God I grew up before social media, because now everything Mm -hmm. you do is on social media. I was wondering if you would mind, do you have a favorite poem? Would you mind reading one? How about The
1: Streak from my first full-length book, uh, Wild Domestic? This is The Streak. It's a narrative poem. First, we streaked the dean's house. No one was home, but we ran around it anyway, in tennis shoes and nothing else covering our naked young bodies but night, except for the boy in the kilt, too long even for a giant that he raised up so he could run and show his stuff. We ran across campus, streaked to stork tower, hooting, hollering, whooping at our mostly unnoticed antics. We gathered ourselves into a circle in the quad, arms across shoulders, dancing the can-can or the hora or whatever it was, laughing, chanting, emboldened by beer and cheered by marijuana. Later, someone showed the photos they took for the school paper. There was I, the only girl to face the lens, my whiteness made shocking by that wedge of pubic hair, and all the guys, penises soft but pointing upward as caught by the camera on the downward side of the hop, as though to say maybe they couldn't stop the war or the draft or even the irresistible pull of the system that would inevitably swallow them whole, but they weren't going to get hard about it. This was just a night to show that we weren't afraid to take our clothes off and have our pictures taken on a Saturday night in Isla Vista, California, with the damp air sharpened by eucalyptus and the gallons of oil that fouled the shore, while the charred remains of the Bank of America waited just off campus for the students, the nation, to forget all the fuss, and in fact, to join them when they got back to the business of chewing up the world.
0: It's always great to connect with Tamara. She has such a fine eye for detail and emotional honesty, and of course, a keen grasp of language, which I truly admire. Her poetry is a heartfelt series of love notes to life, even when it seems that there's not much to love about the moment. It runs from impetuous and whimsical moments of youth to deeply profound ponderings on life and its meaning. Come back next week when we continue the conversation with a second poem that is perhaps my absolute favorite. As always, I'll post links about everything that we talked about in the show notes. Don't forget to send me your questions and suggestions. I read every one of them, even if I don't have the opportunity to respond to them all. Please be sure to rate this episode. It only takes seconds, but your rating moves this podcast closer to the top of searches so that my friends and I can reach more people. I am looking forward to sharing more upcoming in the company of friends talks with you. So be sure to follow me on the socials and the dot com all at the Queen Trow podcast. That's T-H-E-Q-U-A-I-N-T-R-E Double L E podcast. I am Sil Annan, the Queen Trow, and until next time, I wish you passion, grace, adventure, elegance, and beauty.